everyone it is brianna and i am so excited you guys because today we have the and i have to place the in front of her name we have the carlicia williams bradley carlicia williams bradley is a passionate educator and youth advocate who ser- who currently serves as the executive director of impact tulsa but not only that she also serves as the congressional district one oklahoma state board education member i don't know about y'all but if y'all been tuning into the news and social media and inside your home even this topic has taken over everywhere and i'm so excited that she is here to help us talk about it and explain it more i'll begin with can you explain to us with the topic critical race theory can you explain to our listeners what that is Sure. Well, first of all, Brianna, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to get to spend this time with you and talking to your audience about what we have been talking around as a nation, which is critical race theory. It's popped up across many states, many conservative states, and stating that it doesn't deserve a place in K-12 education. And a lot of folks are using the banner of critical race theory to really talk about the fact that we don't want conversations about race and racism in classrooms. And so critical race theory is actually the study. It's something that most students do not experience. I learned about until graduate school. So I want to be clear about that. This is not taught in K-12, but it is the study of our legal system and policy and laws and how those are created to sustain systems of oppression, white supremacy, and they enforce racism. So ultimately, it's looking at how our system was constructed and how it perpetuates inequities. This complex analysis oftentimes does not happen or is not even discussed in K-12 classrooms. So when many states are talking about critical race theory ban in K-12, Well, those conversations were never happening there. So what we're really talking about as we dig into the law and the legislation and the rules are conversations about race and racism that make oftentimes white students feel uncomfortable. Let's say that this theory is not banned. What type of outcome benefit, if that's the right word, do you see it happening for for schools, parents, teachers? The whole. That's a great question, Brianna. And I think that understanding, I think we have to really uh, break apart what folks are talking about when they say we don't need to talk about critical race theory in schools. I always come back to this point of what we're placing under that umbrella is conversations about race and racism and lived experiences of people of color in our society. And so I think that we were accepting of that if we allowed for teachers to have brave conversations in the classroom, talk about where this shows up and individuals' experience with race and how racism plays out in our country. I mean, we really allow for students to have a well-rounded education. We allow for them to have empathy and understanding and to grow across lines of difference and to not be raised to say, I don't see color, but I do see you in the fullness of your identity and allowing for students of color to feel seen and to be able to walk in that. So I think that us 
uh, approaching conversations that are oftentimes uncomfortable, facing hard history and talking about it. It allows for us to not repeat the mistakes of our past and to grow into a more equitable and just society. I agree. With that being said, do you feel like Oklahoma educators are asking themselves how their Black students feel and making space for them to express themselves within classrooms currently? Well, you know, I think that I'm not sure what Oklahoma educators are asking themselves right now. I know several have reached out to me stating that they're concerned. They're concerned about the fact that we are trying to dictate what can or cannot show up in the classroom and putting such harsh punishments alongside that. So when we talk about, you know, not allowing for anyone to feel uncomfortable or to feel guilt or shame, you know, and a teacher can lose their certification, I I do believe teachers are probably thinking, well, what can I say and what can't I say? What happens if a student says something and what happens if someone doesn't? So what we might see is more teachers being extra safe and not talking about anything and not trying to touch that line. So I think that a lot of times when decisions have been made and when legislation passes, I, I do wonder, is there a question of how does this impact students of color versus oftentimes the loudest voices who are speaking out against these conversations about race and racism. There was a a young lady at the board meeting who asked in public comment, she stated that, you know, do you see me? Do you, I feel like people don't care about me and my experiences as a black woman. She referenced herself as a woman at the age of 16, standing before a board meeting, advocating for true education to be seen, to be heard, right? And so I think that many times as we see in America, we don't pause to think about who is actually impacted by this. And it is students of color. Right. I'm glad that you said that because before you said that, I, well, before, let me say, I felt like this was more catered, the banning was more catered to who was going to find a problem with it, particularly predominantly white students. And nobody ever begged the question, how do students of color feel about it? And nobody ever really stops to regard their feelings or their thoughts on anything. And I feel like that's a problem that also needs to be addressed. That was a that was a point I try, I kept trying to make, which was if these laws were designed to make sure students didn't feel uncomfortable, the question they forgot to ask was who was already uncomfortable in American history classes, and that was any minority group, right? Uh, especially like I don't know if it's still mandated that you take like a one semester of like Oklahoma history in like elementary school or middle school, but I remember even as a young kid I was like this history seems like it's missing something. This seems to be a history of just the white people in the land run and after. And I'm like, I know there are people here already. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. It's funny because my first thought when I heard that it got banned, I was all like, well, many students of color are already learning their history at home. So, well, I can't, well, I, I was one of those students and my mom was so adamant because she's like, you're not going to learn this in the school. So you have to know it and I have to teach it to you here. And I was that one student in history class that every time I heard something or I seemed like they skimmed over something, I was always, I didn't, I didn't raise my hand. I didn't wait to be called on. I was like, no, that's wrong. You're missing something. And I was always the one giving my input. And I was always the one getting sent to the principal's office and getting in trouble. 
okay, you know, that type of stuff, you know, that's on your transcript, like disorderly conduct, this and that. But I was always the student that was like, no, I mean, I can't accept what you're teaching me because this is wrong. And I think that there's not enough students who have the opportunity to to do that, right? And so when we think about how much time kids spend in schools and our formal education system and how at times the system is set up and designed and operating the way that it was intended to to do so, right? right. Uh, but I do think about even the students who are able to learn their history at home, Black history is American history. And who needs to know it more than us? more than me and more than you, Brianna, is white folks, right? I mean, we, we, Absolutely. we can't, we can't um, wipe away where we've been because where we've been gives us a very clear understanding of where we are today. And the implications of not knowing is the harm and potential of repeating that. Exactly. And what's even more scary is not only do they need to know it, but they aren't being taught it in home. They don't even want it to be taught in school. So that lets you know that it's not it's not a conversation at home. So to me, it's just like this whole debacle is just so crazy to me because it's all like you need the information, but yet you don't want the information. And if you're close to information, then where can we go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we are truly at a crossroads. Folks might feel like okay, this was, you know, one vote or just the rules. We're just going to make do with it for now. But truthfully, this is a decision that impacts generations. What is happening right now and erasing this and and trying to even intimidate or place fear in these conversations happening, it's kind of like the pendulum shifted. So in 2020, a lot of Uh, momentum around racial consciousness and awareness of the Black Lives Matter movement and really just critical conversations were happening. Then we fast forward to 2021 and it's legislation like this. You know, we just came off of the Tulsa race massacre centennial spotlight on Tulsa, spotlight on this history. But I even beg the question of, okay, well, what does it mean to have conversations about this in the classroom? What does it mean to learn this now that it's a part of the standards? How can you not unpack race and racism in that conversation? It's really difficult. I mean, is is this just a outgrowth of the continuing battle over how and who dictates what history is taught in K through twelfth grade? Uh, K through the twelfth grade, because I know, like, just like from past battles of like the two different textbook, like textbooks are geared towards the states that can buy the most textbooks. So it's California and Texas, and so there was always this fight between the two different ways they wanted to explain American history to students. And I mean, is this just an, an an adding on to that, even though this is something that isn't even taught in K through 12? Yeah. I mean, I think that you could say it's adding on to that, but I, I find it to be, have even greater consequences than that because we are using the title of critical race theory, but that is not what we're talking about. We're, we're adding the umbrella of conversations about race and racism and anything that makes a student feel uncomfortable. I mean, we have standards that say to talk about Jim Crow laws, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, like, that's actually in our state standards. And I'm like, I'll oh, just teach the standards. But those standards are going to make some students feel uncomfortable. So what we're really saying is that even though we've written down that kids need to learn this, talking about it is going to now be complicated. So my fear is that are they actually going to what what will they learn, right? So I think that 
the textbooks, even when you compare textbooks from California and Texas, it is baffling the difference of what is taken out um, in that process. But I, I, I really think about this is even though we can say kids need to learn it, this to me is us possibly placing a censure on these critical conversations. I mean, again, I've academically trained historian, so I have mixed feelings about how history is sort of just summarized in middle school and high school. And so I'm wondering if it's almost a, should we be shifting it more towards giving people critical reasoning skills versus trying to summarize America's complicated and long history? That's true. I mean, I think that when we when we talk about preparing students for career in life, <laughs> it isn't the ability to memorize and regurgitate and spit back out an answer on a test. It is that ability to critically examine and to navigate situations and to understand other folks' lived experiences. And a lot of times that does come from sitting and processing others' lived experiences in conversations that we're talking about right now, the ab- ability to think and analyze our systems and the ways in which we have ended up where we are in, in American history and global history. So I, I agree with you. The, the reasoning skills, the ability to analyze and to think critically is what moves us forward. I will, when I was watching it go down on the news and in the newspaper, I made note of this because I found it odd that the Democrats and the legislator who opposed the House Bill 1775, if I'm getting it right, they argued that it was a waste of time. And I noted this. They argued that it was a waste of time and addressed a non-existent problem. Democrats felt like this, or the so-called liberal community. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, oftentimes when we, first of all, the the State Department of Education said we haven't gotten any complaint about critical race theory or these conversations happening in schools. There, there have been no no complaints. Those haven't been elevated. So why why is this the urgent issue that we're addressing? Why is this of all of the education laws that were passed in the legislative session? This is the one that requires emergency rules. This wasn't an issue that was pressing. It does fit a political agenda, but many folks have said, or some have said, this was a solution in search of a problem. And there were, <laughs> there's many problems in public education that we need to be solving. This was not one of them. That also makes me tell, brings the question, okay. You're African-American, you're female, and you were the only voice in the room. So, of course, I have to ask you, and you not only were you the only voice in the room, you were the only one to oppose this. What was going through your mind? Like, that's my number one question. Like, what, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? I mean, I, I'm sure you heard a lot. I'm sure you were like, eh. Like, what, what were you thinking? Honestly, I think that when Safira, she was the last public comment, she was, as I mentioned, talked about her earlier, a 16-year-old Black student from Millwood, and her comments just, it really pierced my heart because I could see so much of myself in her, right? When she talked about, you know, do you see me? So I grew up here in Tulsa. I went to public school. And at Union, I was oftentimes the only in my class. I never had a teacher who looked like me. I distinctly remember Oklahoma history. I distinctly remember U.S. history and world history. And oftentimes my personal history started with 
we were slaves. Martin Luther King had a dream. And then Kumbaya. Right. And so there were critical components of times in school where I did not feel seen. So first of all, I already knew that I was going to vote no, but hearing her speak, like I, I had, I literally had to hold back tears. I was holding back tears, listening to her and I was holding back tears, talk, like talking. I could not be silent. Uh, Once we got to the vote, I knew that I could not be silent. And I felt like even though, you know, I'm going against the grain, I'm going against the majority, I'm looking in, in the room and many of the legislatures who brought this bill into fruition were standing right there looking dead at me, standing in the back of the room. Um, I felt a peace over me as well, <laughs> because I knew that in that moment, whether this changed the result or not, I had to say something. Like when you think about leadership, when you think about sitting at seats and at tables, it's the question like, what are, what, what are you there for if you're not willing to risk something <laughs> on behalf of those that you desire to represent? I am Safira. I was Safira. And, and ironically, I still sit at that table feeling just like she felt. <laughs> Do you see me? Right? It was a lot of mixed emotions. I, and I'll be completely transparent with you. After that meeting, I just, I, I felt so just mm, depleted almost, you know, because it's like, even though, even though I have uh, got to this seat and am sitting at this table, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to change things and to turn things around. And it just makes me wonder what will it take? It takes more than black voices and votes. <laughs> it's going to take allies who are willing to step up and to do more. I mean, I had people come up to me after I made those comments and tell me, oh, you're just so articulate. I love listening to you speak. And I'm like, ooh. Michael Grish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, so, but do you see me? <laughs> Right. Do, did you hear me? <laughs> did you connect with the content of what I said? Uh, so it's just we have a long ways to go. And that experience um, for me was a moment to stand in my truth, a moment to find strength to speak, even in the midst of disappointment. And yeah, that, that's all I got. You know, I was that also brings the question. I was so nervous today because I felt like you represent me. Like you said, Sophia is you. I felt like you in that board meeting represent me. You represent so many other black women, black men, minor, just people who aren't there, the voices, the people who aren't seen. And my, my other thought was, is there pressure for you to represent so many? And if there is pressure, then how do you how do you deal and handle it? That's a great question. I think that I I do fully acknowledge that having this opportunity and, and having a seat that I I represent a community, and I think that any anyone in a leadership role has to stay connected to community because you aren't just speaking for yourself. Like leadership is actually taking the voice of others and and at times being a representative of. And so I I do 
think about things through my own lived experience as a Black woman, as a Black mother, I am willing to name in those conversations, hey, well, how does this impact students of color? I'm very clear on my North Star. And I think that operating in the midst of my values, and one of my core values is authenticity, that is something that carries me in this work. It carries me in my ability to stay true and grounded in what I believe in, but also the deep desire and the understanding of knowing that I, I am a voice that is representative of, of many. And if I'm not willing to use my voice in representation of those that I have the privilege of sitting at the table and representing, then what am, what am I there for? So I think that my faith and my value of authenticity carries me far, but I also get to stay connected to community and to teachers and to students through, through my work at Impact Tulsa and supporting 21 school districts in Tulsa County. And also just, you know, through my deep connections in the community, I'm grateful for those who uh, continue to reach out to me. I get emails all the time from across the state, from parents, from students, from board members, from community members, all of which who don't agree with me. But I love, I love to be able to engage and to listen and to hear because I don't just sit at that table as Carlisha Williams Bradley. I am a representative for Congressional District One, and it's important for me to show up with with that community in mind. Absolutely. I'm glad that you said that because you had said what good is being in the seat and in the room. But for me, I'm so I'm just so happy that you were at the table. I'm so happy that you were there, that you were seen, that I got to see you. You know, it was funny. I, it, you were in the paper and I, I clipped your picture out of my daughter. She's only one. And I said to her, I was like, look, you can be at tables like this and you can be at seats like this. Uh-huh. And it's it's moments like that that okay I'm getting emotional I'm also pregnant girl <laughs> okay but it's also things like that that I'm like she's just like you and me and she she's making moves and she has a voice and she's letting that voice be heard and that mm-hmm. meant so much to me. Oh, thank you. That means so much to me. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I don't want to take all the questions, Jesse, because I feel like I would just ask a ton and then you wouldn't be like, okay, Brianna, can I, can I get a question? <laughs> I mean, mostly my question is, how do we fight against, one, a political party that used to say you don't want the government to pass bills that are unnecessary, which they now are doing, and also tying that into the, the fight over sort of the Oklahoma education system and how it is constantly at the lowest and we're just making it worse by things like this. Like what, and this is a critique I make to other hosts of other podcasts, which is don't ask five questions, that's one question. So let me rephrase. Where does the fight for Oklahoma education go now? Great question, Jesse. I think that <clears throat> for, for this bill specifically and the law and the rules, there is still another opportunity. Those were emergency rules that take place for this school year. I've been telling everyone who reaches out, I'm like, you can, you can still get involved because the thing is, is this was a very well organized push. I got hundreds of emails before the board vote. And telling me I needed to vote and put forward these rules, that it needed to happen. We need to end race, racism conversations in schools. That's literally in the email, hundreds of them. So folks are mobilizing and organizing to push for this type of legislation. And oftentimes we end up on the end of reacting versus 
proactively engaging in the process. And so in the fall, when these rules are put before the board again, there is a process in which there's public comment, there's review, there's all of these methods that allow for us to weigh in. And those voices must, must, must be heard. We've got to organize and and have a counter narrative to many of the outlandish things that I heard in the public comments comparing these conversations to bullying and saying that if we continue to talk about race, we're creating conditions for another genocide. I mean, like there are very extreme views on why this should not be in school. But I think what we were missing and what we heard through Safira was the other side, right? But she was one out of the nine. So that time to get engaged is so critical and important. And I also think that many times as we talk about public education, the future of public education lies in our ability to invest in teachers, point blank, period. I have worked as a teacher and I can tell you, after I've led a global nonprofit organization, multi-million dollar org, startup businesses, I've done a lot. The hardest job I have ever had was as an eighth grade teacher. And it was also the lowest paying job I have ever had was as an eighth grade teacher, right? And so I, I just think about the ways in which where we choose to invest and in what. Public education is a critical investment if we think about economic development and sustainability for our state, but also just the future of our nation. It it, it requires an investment in public education and the greatest investment that we can make in that is in our teaching pipeline, diversifying it for one, but also getting teachers a living wage <laughs> to be paid to do this work and developing them, developing their skill set, supporting them in the classroom. Those are the things that we must rally around to see greater change. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. You completely answered I had so many questions and within our conversation, you've answered like a total of five and just one, one answer. So I'm yeah. like, wow. But it's funny because I'm in, I'm currently in school. I'm in a class called uh, Intercultural Communications. And right now she's making us watch a documentary about racial relationships. And one of the statements on there, uh, speaking of allies, he was all like, one of the statements on there is white liberalism only goes as far as someone and starts to challenge their situation or their seats personally. And I'm like, well, then you have to question who's really an ally and who's not. And how do we get allies if they feel like their seats or their positions are always being compromised or threatened? Like, is is it sometimes it seems like the minorities in general are stuck in a place where it's like, okay, how can we move forward? Because who who's going to help? And then at times you got to question that help too. So it's like very discouraging, very disheartening. Yeah, I think about allyship and what it what it really means. And examples of I've seen I have folks in my life that I see as examples of what it means to be an ally. And one of them was a coach for me, Michelle Kinder. And she led a social change leaders program and intentionally invested in the leadership development of Black women and women of color and watching her see the power to to carve out paths and to make a way for other women and especially women of color. Like I've seen it. I've, I've been in meetings with folks like Nick Doctor, who will 
curve around the microaggression and make sure that people of color are heard in the room and that their ideas are given credit. Like I have seen folks who will cede their power for the sake of elevating the voices of people of color. And it's rare, right? It, it is rare because it requires for us to give something of ourselves. I, I even think uh, as a Black person of, of privilege, uh, w- asking that question of what does it mean for my child to attend a certain school? I have that choice and I have that privilege to take them somewhere. But we also know that for public education to progress, and, and oftentimes the greatest schools are the ones that have mixed socioeconomic status. Like there's kids from all kinds of backgrounds. Who's going to take, who is going to cede their power and privilege for the greater good? Like there's many ways that this this concept of being an ally or of giving up our power for others plays out for us as Black people, but especially for white folks and, and others as allies. It is the the ability to say, my my step, while it might not benefit me, I know that this will benefit our community. And I think that until Actually, you know, until it we get to this place to where we don't feel like I'm doing this for like a white person doesn't feel like I'm doing this for black people, for them, like the hero or the rescuer. But I'm actually doing this for humanity. I'm doing this for a better future for even my children and generations to come. And so we are all invested in this as our collective fight and not doing it as a favor to other people. We we won't we won't move forward. It can't be. I'm doing this for you. A lot of times you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your future. You're doing it for all of us. But, you know, I also noted uh, Jesse said something earlier about, or was it Jesse? Or did I just imagine it was Jesse? But you know that Oklahoma is the highest in the world for incarceration. And I was going to ask, do you feel like education had contributed to those type of rates, especially within Oklahoma? I mean, we just banned certain concepts like CRT. Do you feel like there's any connection, correlation to how our education system is currently to that type of incarceration rate? I think that if we really want to examine the school to prison pipeline, we can go back and think about school discipline. We do know that in Oklahoma and in many states that black students, uh, black males in particular, but also black girls, we don't talk about black girls as much, but are uh, disciplined at a much higher rate than their white peers. And this is starting all the way in pre-K. And we know that educational opportunities and that time in the classroom is critical, which allows for students to be on track and to not drop out. I mean, there's so many indicators, but this starts at a young age. It starts, you know, at four years old when we are comparing children and their behaviors and placing them on this track and trajectory. So it it does require us unpacking our bias and how sometimes, you know, the most well-intentioned good teachers show up and label a child. We can look at many different factors, but I I do think that it's important for schools to examine their discipline structures and who is punished at a much harsher rate, why, and what is the long-term implications of that on their students and that school to prison pipeline. I agree because I I mean, maybe it's just me trying to be funny because I'm from Texas originally. I went through the Texas education system. But when I moved here, 
it wasn't hard to note that not only was Oklahoma low in education, but high incarceration. And my thought was, I feel like y'all focus on the wrong things. I feel like y'all are putting on this money into prisons and this and that, but not enough in your school systems or not enough attention and devotion into your school system. I was like, nobody's asking those questions. Nobody's looking into that. I was like, that's a problem. Am I the only one, you know, looking at that? No, I mean, there's many folks who critically examine that across our country and, and conversations about where where we choose to invest in what and in what systems does that uphold. And a lot of times you will hear me say that when we think about our public education system, even it was created at a time when students of color were not allowed to be a part of that system. And so for us to really unpack and to build an equitable education system, it is going to require a critical lens at the many components, the ways in which we're spending funding and and thinking about public education, classification of schools, classes, curriculum, resources. To move forward will require some deep transformation and a willingness to be innovative to meet the needs of all of our kids. Okay, when I I read that you have a BA in African American African and African American studies and you work with Women Empowering Nation. Do you feel like that has prepared you for your current role as Oklahoma State Board member? And if it has, how has it? This is one I was like really excited about. <laughs> so t- um honestly my African and African American studies degree is a part of that story of me not learning about myself in K-12, like my history, nothing. To be honest with you, I really suffered from low self-esteem, identity challenges. Like I wanted to be anyone but me. So I got to the University of Oklahoma. My counselor recommended that I take intro to African-American studies to get Western civilizations credit or some one of the credits that I needed for school. And so I ended up enrolling in the class my freshman year. And when I tell you that class changed my life. The power of history, the, the power that is, and it also kind of lets me know why accurate history oftentimes is not told because it made me just feel so much strength, so much like power, joy. It was just reclaiming a legacy to know this is where I came from. It changed the trajectory of my studies, like I kept, I was like, I want to take more classes. I want to take more classes. I didn't intend to be, a, I was a double major. So I, I did business entrepreneurship and venture management. So then I picked up this African and African-American studies degree because I just could not stop taking the classes. I wanted to go over to the continent. I wanted to connect and know everything I could about this like legacy and genius that I came from. Like I was so proud to be a black woman. And that came through deeper study and analysis of my history and, and our trajectory and plight. It wasn't the story of it just started with slavery. No, we were kings and queens of ancient civilizations. And that piece of information for a Black child, when you're sitting in classrooms, and oftentimes kids are naming like, oh, my ancestors are from Ireland or Spain. And you as a, as a Black child cannot name, many Black children cannot name as African-Americans. My family is from Nigeria or Ghana or Gambia or wherever they're from, like many times we don't have that connection. And so when you have a history that begins with slavery, we're, we're missing so, so much of the conversation. And through this African and African-American studies major, I just got to discover so much more. 
I ended up going on my first trip to Africa in 2007. And it was, it was just transformational. That's what started the work of Women Empowering Nations. After I left grad school, I started working in the Gambia, West Africa with the Gambian government, the Women's Bureau and the World Food Program. And I also launched my nonprofit. So this international exposure, but my own personal journey of going to school in the same school system that now I am sitting at a board and overseeing public instruction for 700,000 kids across the state, it is definitely impacted by my own personal learnings. And especially when this topic came up and knowing how just pure, unfiltered American history and even global history changed my identity, my voice, my purpose-filled journey, I would not be doing the work that I'm doing now had I not had that academic experience at the University of Oklahoma. And so I do know that the power of education and the power of the conversations that we want to strip from the classroom can be detrimental to the forward movement of our state, of our country, of our world. So yes, all of that played a part. And I feel like it prepared me for such a time as this. Um, And it, it was deeply personal. I shared from my personal experience as well as from the experience of representing a community. I love that. I love that. You know, I'm so glad that you made the statement that you found yourself within that one college class, because oftentimes, like I said, I knew who I was at home. You know, my mom told it to me. She reminded she reminded me of it. It wasn't until I got into the public school system that I started to lose that sense of me. And only had to return home to get it because I wasn't getting it at school. Current within this current, the way it is currently, I agree. Many black, many students of color aren't going to receive it if it stays this way within the public education system. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think that like to build inclusive schools where students feel seen and heard, all students feel seen and heard. We also have to be intentional about diversifying the talent pipeline and and choosing to build spaces where students can also see themselves reflected in the administration and the teachers, just as white students have had the privilege of doing for years and years and years as the teaching industry is dominated by white women. Absolutely. Goes back to the question, who's speaking, who's not speaking, who's, you know? Mhm mhm you have absolutely i absolutely enjoyed my this whole segment you have answered every question that i had and not only answered it but you taught me things mm. within this conversation and i'm so ex- i'm so excited that you were here but i'm so glad that you actually made the took the opportunity to take the call i'm so excited cuz as elisa knows like i'm very well i've gotten very political over this last year and a half but like when I heard you were coming I'm like she's like if I can say it like the Michelle Obama in my mind of Oklahoma because she's Aww. like she's like the upper echelons to me and I get to talk to her like I was I was excited and I was nervous and I was like okay and then Lisa's like okay but you got to shimmer it down a little bit because you I was like okay I'm, I'm but I was so I was so excited I was like, oh my goodness oh. Thank you, Brianna. I have enjoyed this interview. One of, one of my favorites. So I appreciate 
I, I I would definitely put the Michelle Obama of Oklahoma as your like the new Facebook Absolutely. circle thing. <laughs> but, uh, okay, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take okay, that. all right. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Young Parents Podcast presented by James Inc. Please make sure to follow James Inc. on Facebook and Instagram and all the other social media feeds. And please make sure to rate and subscribe or follow, depending on what version of Apple you currently have on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next month on another episode of the Young Parents Podcast.